morning. I'm Tim, one of the pastors here. Welcome once again to North Sub. We do hope that you sense here this morning that we were hoping you'd come. While this church is a family, we see save to see at the table for each of you this morning. So we're glad you're here, whether you're here in person or online. And you know, if you're newer with us or if you've been around for a while, honestly, one great way to learn about a church's priorities is to see where it spends its money. And along those lines, we have a town hall budget meeting today, uh, at which we'll get to hear a status report on where we land with a few weeks left in our church fiscal year. And we'll also have some initial brainstorm ideas thrown out about the budget for the new fiscal year, which the congregation will vote on in April. Uh, as always, we'd love to hear your feedback on any of that. So if you plan to stick around with us after church, let us feed you here and uh, we'll talk budget together. Let me pray for us as we go to the word. Lord, you're big and you love us. And that makes us glad. Now let the words that I say and let the thoughts that we all think be pleasing in your sight. For Jesus' sake, amen. We're living in a world ruled by fear. A few examples of what I mean. Two years ago this week, many of us retreated from society for an extended time. Right? And it took a long time for us to emerge again and take the, a risk of getting sick. Another, pull up your social media feed today and you probably won't have to scroll far to find a friend stoking fear about what will happen if a certain political party gains power or what will happen now that they are in power. Third, parents are terrified about what will be taught to our kids at school. Fourth, ethnic groups are terrified of what will happen if members of a diff different ethnic group start moving into the neighborhood. Five, some of you are probably checking your phones even this morning maybe to see if there's any indication from the government regarding whether they're going to bail out these banks. We're all afraid. And that's not to say that there isn't any legitimate reason for concern in any of those areas. There certainly is. I guess the question that I'm raising is, <clears throat> well, in light of the fact that it's big business to keep us afraid, right? There's money to be made from our fear. And plenty of really smart people have figured out the formula, breed fear, and then profit off of solutions to the problem that you've bred fear about. My question is, why are the fear merchants, so to speak, so successful in stoking fear in us? In other words, what's true about us at this moment in history that makes us so susceptible to fear? Michael Horton has an idea. Here's what he says. He says, since we have made ourselves God, we fear anything and everything that we perceive as a threat to our reign. The extent to which we've lost the fear of God will increase our fear of everyone and everything else. profound, I think. I'm going to leave it up there for a second for us to reflect on. See, if I'm my own God, then deep down, I mean, I know. I, I'm unable to keep my thrones secure. I know myself well enough to know. So it's, so it's actually logical for me to be paranoid about threats from all sides that might knock me off my throne. Same thing if I've made my job my God, or my 401k my God, or my kids my God. I know that those gods can't defend themselves from contenders to their throne, so I need to devote my life to scanning the horizon 
to eliminate anything that could threaten their reign. But the Bible teaches about a God who is so secure on his throne that he's literally unshakable. Not only is he not worried about any threats to his reign, look at what Psalm 2 says about it. It says that even when all the world's superpowers band together to try to overthrow him, what's his response? The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord ridicules them. That's how not fearful he is of any rivals. This is an attribute of God called his sovereignty. His sovereignty. It's our next installment in our sermon series. We've talked the past few months about his justice, his holiness, his mercy, and more. Today, his sovereignty. And so I know this is usually the time in which we open up our scripture text for the day. But today, I feel like I need to lay a little bit more uh, a little extra groundwork first. So I want to start today with an assertion that I then want to back up with scripture. So here's the assertion. That no one can do anything to thwart God's ultimate purposes. No one can do anything to thwart God's ultimate purposes. That's almost a definition of what it means for God to be sovereign. It means I can't thwart his ultimate purposes. Not even with my worst sin. You can't either. Not even the devil can. If you remember the story of Job, right? God is on his throne. He's going to stay on his throne. He's always in control. What he has planned will take place. Even if all of his creatures were to band together to try to stop him, no one can do anything to thwart God's ultimate purposes. And to be clear, I'm not just saying that when we do wrong, God will adjust course and figure out a way to make it turn out for good. I'm not just saying that. I'm saying something stronger than that. I'm saying God's so in control that before we even did wrong, God already planned to use even our sin to serve his ultimate purposes. That's a big claim. I wouldn't want to make it if it weren't affirmed all throughout scripture, but it is. And so for the short time that we have together this morning, the most clear way to show this, I think, is by looking together at the worst sin in human history. After all, if there was a sin that could possibly send God into scramble mode where he was trying to figure out a plan B, history's worst sin, whatever it is, would be the one to do it, true? So let's reflect on that. And, And of course, the most egregious sin in history was the cross putting to death of the only truly innocent person ever to live. This was creatures gathering together to execute their creator, the one through whom and for whom they were made. Though he had only ever showered them with perfect kindness, though he had loved them so much that he had left his heavenly throne to be among them on earth, they responded to him by torturing him and murdering him. That's the most egregious sin in human history. So for for our purposes this morning, surely such profound evil can't fall under the purview of God's sovereignty. It can't, right? Surely the unlawful slaying of the perfect Son of God made God at least stagger for a moment from his previously secure spot on his throne. No? Would you turn with me to Acts chapter 4? 
Acts chapter 4. There's a Bible in the seat in front of you. Pull up your Bible app, however you want to look at it. You want to be there with us. Here in Acts 4, we get a chance to hear how Jesus' first followers understood the death of Jesus in relationship to God's sovereignty. And listen, while we're turning there, there are different ways that people have tried to kind of theorize about the relationship between God's sovereignty and human agency and responsibility. It's hard to comprehend how both could be true, how God could both be sovereign and yet people choose to do evil. And so there are a few schools of thought. Sorry about the fancy words that are going to be up here for a moment. It's worth taking a moment, I think, though, to spell these out because some of us maybe will recognize our own approaches to this question that we've held without realizing there's a name for how we thought about it. So some people subscribe to what's called fatalism. Fatalism. That would be that God sovereignly plans and controls all events such that human decisions are neither significant nor responsible. That's one side of the spectrum, right? God's so in control that nothing we do is significant or responsible. We're like robots. The other side of the spectrum is something we might call Pelagianism, that we determine our destiny with our choices. That's the decisive factor. So God's role in all of it is to permit what happens in history, but really we're the drivers. And then some people try to chart a middle way. There's different names for different middle ways here, but some version of that, hey, there's some of this and some of this. Maybe God fixes and determines some things in history, but only the like, few that he cares about, and we control and determine all the others. The problem is, that when Jesus' first followers reflected on his death in the days following his resurrection and ascension, their understanding of the events that had just taken place doesn't track with any of these approaches. So let's take a look together at Acts 4, 27 and 28. This is after Jesus has died, raised from the dead, ascended to heaven. Two of his closest friends, Peter and John, have just healed a guy. They've been arrested. They've been ordered not to talk about Jesus anymore at which time they've refused, and they've been released, and then they ran back to all the other Christians in town to tell them everything that happened. So this is when the church has come together, and they've heard this report from Peter and John, and they're celebrating. They're lifting up their voices to God in this beautiful prayer that starts in verse 24. We're picking up the prayer midstream in verse 27 to try to gain an understanding from their prayer of how these first Christians understood Jesus' death. Here's Here's what they say in their prayer. For in fact talking to God. In this city, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, assembled together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, to do whatever your hand and your will had predestined to take place. We see in the words of this prayer two sides of the same coin, namely human action and God's sovereignty. Human action, God's sovereignty, not at odds with one another, not pitted against one another, but rather working together. So let's look at both. First, human action, verse 27. Those lifting up this prayer recount that when Jesus was killed, there was planning involved, right? Scheming, you might say. Assembling together against Jesus. The NIV, if you're looking at that, uses the term conspiring When we look back at the Gospels, we're reminded that the events leading up to Jesus' death are a conspiracy. Think about the different things that took place. They're paying 30 pieces of silver to Judas to pervert justice. They're hiring false witnesses to make up accusations against Jesus in court. They're doing it all in the middle of the night. 
They're shipping Jesus from Pilate to Herod back to Pilate. This is all willful human action, and it's sinful human action. It's a conspiracy marked by grave injustice with every member of the conspiracy not acting as puppets, but rather exerting their wills to brainstorm and then to bring about what they wanted to see happen. And see the language of verse 27, it prohibits us, removes our ability to say that the bad guys, so to speak, are, they're just robots in this whole thing. We can't say that. We can't say that once God wanted Jesus to go to the cross, they were somehow compelled against their wills to take action against Jesus. No, no, they were discussing. They were making plans. They were assembling together to scheme up how to execute Jesus. So whatever we're going to say this morning about God's sovereignty, we have to affirm that it can't negate human agency or responsibility or the significance of human decisions. Here's how Jesus himself said it before he died in Luke 22. He said, for the Son of Man will go away as it has been determined. Okay, so that's God's sovereignty. But woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. In other words, the sovereignty doesn't neglect the human responsibility. It doesn't, doesn't negate the human responsibility. People were willfully choosing their sin when they crucified Jesus. And they will be held responsible for that sin, according to Jesus. So that's the human side, human action side. Yet, there's this other side of the coin. God's sovereignty, right? And even though there was an enormous amount of human will and effort involved in the conspiracy to kill Jesus, all these conspirators only end up doing whatever God's hand and God's will had predestined to take place. To use the language of these first Christians. That's not to say that when Herod and Pilate and Gentiles all met together, uh, they were getting together and saying to one another, hey, let's figure out how to do what God has predestined should happen. No, they were meeting together to do what they believed to be in their own self-interest, yet they unwittingly ended up doing exactly what God had predestined would take place all along. And sometimes we overthink that word predestined as though well, maybe if we looked at the Greek, it would mean something different from... But, but when you look it up in the Greek, guess what it means to predestine something? To decide upon beforehand, right? Predetermine, it's just what it sounds like, to predestine, right? So if we are tempted to be mad at Jesus' conspirators, like, ah, if not for their sinful scheming, we could have maybe had 50 more good years with Jesus on earth, giving us wise teachings that could have really helped us out. Verse 28 eliminates any possibility of us thinking that way. Right? Uh, what happened is what God determined long ago would happen. And listen, the, the Hebrew Bible itself points to that, doesn't it? I'm talking about our Old Testament, the Bible that Jesus read growing up. And that our Jewish friends and neighbors read each Shabbat today. Flip through these pages of our Old Testament and look what you find. You find a snake on a pole that if you look to it, you'll be healed. You find the blood of the lamb on your doorpost and the angel of death passes you over. You find a scapegoat carrying the sins of the people to a cursed place outside the camp. You find a prophecy about one who will be pierced for our iniquities. Like, come on now. The early church, 
isn't making up some sort of bizarro claim out of left field when they say that God predestined Jesus' death on a cross. God literally wrote hints on every page of our Old Testament that he was going to do this one day. So whatever we wanted to affirm rightly about human responsibility and freedom from verse 27, we have to simultaneously affirm that human agency doesn't neglect God's, doesn't negate God's sovereignty over all of it. Even the sinful choices and actions of the Jerusalem conspirators only end up accomplishing what God had always purposed to happen in the first place. So in light of what we've seen here in verses 27 and 28, let's review our three uh, approaches. Right? The three common approaches. Fatalism. That doesn't hold up against these verses, right? Because verse 27 makes it clear that these humans are responsible for their decisions, and decisions have real significance. But Pelagianism on this side over here doesn't hold up either, right? Verse 28 makes a bolder claim that God had permitted the conspirators, that God had permitted the evil choices to happen. He says something more than that, that they were doing what he had predestined to take place. But what about our option three? Do you remember our option three, that kind of like middle in between space? Someone might say, well, a middle way isn't ruled out by what we just saw in verses 27 and 28. Like maybe God predestined this event, the cross, because it's pretty central to salvation history, but that doesn't mean he's exercising sovereignty over the person I choose to marry or the job that I choose to accept or the parking space that I chose to pull into this morning in the church parking lot. So we have a little more work to do if we were to make the case that the Acts 4 pattern applies beyond the cross to a wider scope of human events. How much, in other words, is God really sovereign over? I'm going to do something that I don't usually do here, and that's to rapid fire a whole bunch of verses at you right in a row with very little comment. And that's just because I just want you to get a taste of the sheer volume and preponderance of this message in Scripture. Okay, so according to Scripture, ready? God is sovereign over birth and death and sickness and health. Deuteronomy 32, 39. According to Scripture, God is sovereign over the role of every die. According to scripture, God is sovereign over the choices that we make. A king's heart is like channeled water in the Lord's hand. He directs it wherever he chooses. But it's not just kings. A person's heart plans his way, but the Lord determines his steps. According to scripture, God is sovereign over calamity and disaster. I'm the Lord. There is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make success and create disaster. We saw it earlier in this service. Amos 3, if a disaster occurs in the city, hasn't the Lord done it? Lamentations 3, who is there that speaks and it happens unless the Lord has ordained it? Don't both adversity and good come from the mouth of the Most High? According to Scripture, God is sovereign over whether we believe in him and obey him. Ezekiel 36, he says, I'll place my spirit within you and cause you to follow my statutes and carefully observe my ordinances. Acts 13, when the Gentiles heard this, they rejoiced and honored the word of the Lord. And who believed? All who had been appointed to eternal life believed. Ephesians 1, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in love before him. He predestined us to 
be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ for himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. According to scripture, though, he's also sovereign over whether we disbelieve in him and disobey him. The other side of that same coin, you think about this story from 1 Samuel 2. Eli's sons, who are wicked, they would not listen to their father. Why? Since the Lord intended to kill them. Sounds a lot like 1 Peter 2, where it says they stumble because they disobey the word. They were destined for this. In summary, thinking at the whole breadth of God's sovereignty, Daniel 4, all the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing. He does what he wants with the army of heaven and the inhabitants of the earth. There is no one who can block his hand or say to him, what have you done? Isaiah 46, he says, I declare the end from the beginning and from long ago what is not yet done, saying, my plan will take place, and I will do all my will. Job 42, I know that you can do anything, and no plan of yours can be thwarted. Psalm 115, 3, our God is in heaven and does whatever he pleases. Actually, showed restraint here by cutting the list of verses that I wanted to show you. But just from the few displayed here over the last few minutes, is it not clear that God claims to be exercising his kingly rule over everything at all times? That nothing, not our sin, not the devil, not disasters, nothing falls outside the purview of his sovereign reign. When you put that truth together with the complementary truth, that humans still retain the ability to make real choices that are significant and for which we are responsible. Those two sides of the coin together make what theologians have called compatibilism. Compatibilism. To be a compatibilist, and sorry for the big word, I just you know, we want to identify it. It's just to say that these two are compatible, that yes, God is sovereign, and yes, humans are responsible. Both. The wisest forms of compatibilism don't attempt to show exactly how these two are compatible. Rather, the best versions of it just point out, Scripture does affirm both. Scripture doesn't see any contradiction between the two because it affirms both, right? So it's a bull that we have to grab by both horns simultaneously, right? Even if we don't understand how it all works out. For what it's worth, I was about 24 when I became a subscriber to compatibilism. Uh, The way it happened, I wasn't a pastor or even thinking about being a pastor, but I was reading through the Bible in a year like many of us are doing this year. I just decided this year, as I read through the Bible, I'm going to make a note of everything that comes up in my reading that has something related to God being sovereign. Because I was interested. I had been getting into some arguments with a friend about it. And I was like, oh, I just want to see how sovereign he, what, he, what he claims to be sovereign over, right? And so it ended up being, by the end of the year, this 30-page single-space document that I had on my computer with comments from my research. And I remember sharing it. I was so excited to share it with this guy I was discipling at the time, high school student. He was like, Tim, that was honestly so incredibly boring. You, <laughs> you could have made your point by, you made the point by page two. I didn't need to read 30 pages on this. All I'm saying is, I don't know how you read the Bible cover to cover and conclude anything other than that this book is making the case that God is utterly calling the shots. Listen, I feel 
the same uneasiness about that that maybe you do. Like we say, well, what about free will? Doesn't such an expansive view of God's sovereignty rob humans of our freedom? Let's think about that for a moment, though. Think about freedom with me. Who is the most free being in the universe? Call it out. It must be God, right? Scary if he wasn't. Yet, does God have freedom to sin? Jumping ahead in our sermon series, but the answer is no. Spoiler alert. Uh, scripture says he can't deny himself. He can't lie. He can't act contrary to his nature. So the one who is more free than any of us, nevertheless, is not free to sin. We'll talk more about that in a few weeks. But similarly, when we get to heaven, you and I, we'll be the most free versions of ourselves that we have ever been. True? Yet, we won't be able to sin. We'll be so free precisely because we won't be able to sin. So what all that means is that the ultimate freedom, the freedom that the Bible holds out as desirable, is not the freedom of contrary choice or the freedom to choose sin. Rather, it's the freedom to reject sin, like God does. It's the freedom of a train on its tracks, the freedom to live as God intended without being hindered by sin. The train is more free on the tracks than when it's loosed from the tracks and set free in a field, right? That's the freedom that is held out as ultimate. And that's a long way of saying, yes, our wills are free, in a sense. But it's important that we define what kind of freedom it is that we have and what kind of freedom it is that we desire. Right? So, so I want to be clear this morning about two very important caveats to what we've laid out here. God being sovereign over everything doesn't mean either of these two things. It doesn't mean that God stands behind good and evil in the same way. It doesn't mean that. He doesn't, right? Yes, he's sovereign over all of it. Nothing, none of it happened without him allowing it. Yet he's not the author of evil and won't stand evil being attributed to him. D.A. Carson's book, Divine Sovereignty and Human Responsibility, is a dense read, but so helpful, I think, in nuancing this correctly. Here's how he puts it. He says, God stands behind good, so he stands behind good in one way, evil in another way. He stands behind good in such a way that good is always traceable to God. God stands behind disaster and evil in such a way that it never escapes the bounds of his sovereignty. It always can be attributed to secondary causality, meaning he's not the direct cause of it. And third, he never authors evil. So he stands behind both in some sense, but it's different how he stands behind good and how he stands behind evil. The two are not equivalent, right? Uh, we can't say that God stands behind good and evil in the same way. We also shouldn't say that we're consigned to our fate without any real agency. We saw this isn't so. Yes, God, in some sense, predetermines the course of human events, Yet, it's still fair of him to hold us accountable for our actions because he predetermined things in such a way that preserved our ability to keep making real choices. Here's how Kevin Van Hooser over at Trinity helpfully explains a perspective that I've kind of espoused here in this sermon. He says, the determining causes, that's God determining events, are strong enough to incline the will toward a particular option 
but, and this is the key, not against the person's will or desires. He never forces us in a new direction against our will or against our desires. He works in conjunction with our will and desires uh, as he does his influencing, right? And so we want to be really careful about over-speaking about any of this. We want to be really careful about nuancing this and leaving things unsaid that need to be unsaid. But make no mistake, God doesn't stand behind good and evil in the same way, and he doesn't constrain us to act against our wills. Still, if we were to imagine this morning a God who's anything less than utterly in control of all the major and minor events of human history, we're imagining someone less than the God who's really there. So, why does this matter for my life? Five quick rapid-fire implications. Why this matters, when this matters for our lives, ready? First one, we're suffering. We're suffering, you might think that we're getting God off the hook by saying that what happened to me wasn't God, right? It, it was the devil or human sin that made us suffer. God would have stopped that suffering if he could. But besides the fact that scripture nowhere supports such a perspective, we should think about what we lose when we make excuses for God like that. What good is it to pray to a God who's not powerful enough to override natural disasters or disease or human sin, right? As one pastor said, if we believe a limited view of God's sovereignty to get him off the hook for calamity, we also lose him when we need him for the power to endure calamity and to see it all turn for good. Second, it matters when we want to see our loved ones come to know the Lord. Many of us desperately want the people we know, we know and love to find the hope that we've found in Christ and we sometimes then slip into thinking it's all about our tactics and trying to persuade them. Like, if I would have made the right arguments, if I would have answered their questions in a more compelling way, if I would have been a better example to them, then maybe they'd believe. And while we should evaluate our winsomeness from time to time, God's sovereignty over salvation is a reminder that the main thing our loved ones need is for us to pray for them. True? Because they can't believe until they receive the sorts of new hearts that are capable of belief. And there's no tactic in our tool belt that can perform heart transplants. If they're going to get saved, it won't be because we saved them. It'll be because God saved them. Third, it matters when we're tempted to think too highly of our own efforts. That's generally across every area of our lives. See, the idea that many of us hold without even ever taking time to think on it critically is, I've tried to figure out a way to get a graphic up with this, but... Try to picture it with me. The idea that sometimes I've held is, okay, maybe if here's 100% of the way that I need to go to fulfill what God wants me to do, I can get like 90%. But then sometimes like I need, that's when I pray and ask God, hey, can you make up the gap? That 10% that I can't quite go. And then God's role in all of it is to make up the 10% that I can't go. But if what we've seen today is true, then what the reality is, is that God is the zero to 100. So even the 90% or the 50%, whatever I'm going, was God doing it through me, right? So his part of the bar is 100%, even though my part of the bar is still there too, and it's real, right? Real agency that I exercise. God is sovereign over my part and over whenever he chooses to do something miraculous. Uh, it, it, it overlaps with what I do. Fourth, it matters when we're worried that we're going to walk away from God if we're going to lose our salvation, if it was in our power to truly belong to God, 
for him to save us, but then to truly and ultimately walk away, we would. But he's made these promises. Like in Philippians 1.6, I'm sure of this, that he who started a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Preached a sermon on that verse this time last year. Um, if we truly are among those who belong to him, there's promise after promise in scripture that no sin of ours and no work of the devil will ever be able to separate us from him. His grip on us is too strong for anyone to pry us from his grasp. And it also matters when it feels like the world is turning away from God. The influencer or politician or ruler or entire nation that woke up this morning planning to take God down never made God do anything besides laugh. When the last chapter is written, God will have won decisively. It won't have been close. And that brings us back to how we set it all up at the beginning. Here's our big idea today. Because no one can do anything to thwart God's ultimate purposes, let's not be ruled by fear. Because no one can do anything to thwart God's ultimate purposes, let's not be ruled by fear. Remember this Michael Horton quote we started with? Once I no longer fear God as king, who reigns securely from his throne, I have to replace him with someone. And whoever I replace him with is necessarily going to be susceptible to being overthrown. So my fear does skyrocket. I can't help it. But maybe this is a way that God's people stand out on the North Shore. As the only residents of the North Shore whose God isn't fragile, shouldn't we be the ones who are unshaken by the winds of cultural change? As the only residents of the North Shore whose God whose God's reign isn't hanging on by a precarious thread. Maybe we can join God in laughing in the face of danger. Not because we're reckless, but because we have good reason for confidence. Maybe we're the ones who close our eyes and fall asleep at night secure, knowing that not a hair will fall from my head tonight unless God allows it for his own objectives. If you've never experienced release from that debilitating fear that comes, uh, the release that comes from, from giving your life to the sovereign Lord of the universe, today could be that day for you. Call out to him this morning. Tell him that you believe Jesus died for your sins and you want him on the throne of your life. He will gladly welcome you with open arms and set your life on the rock where it can be secure. No one can do anything to thwart his ultimate purposes. Let's pray. God, it's so encouraging, such a comfort to know that we can come before you and when we come before you, we're coming to one who is rock solid, secure. Who's never scrambling, never fragile, never vulnerable to threats. You're a God who is powerful and able to answer our prayers. You're a God who's able to intervene and to do the things that we're asking you to do. And so we praise you that we can leave our destinies in your hands, knowing that you can do it, 
knowing that if you don't do just what we ask you to do, it's because you're working for our good and you know a better way than we know. And God, as fear starts to rise up in us this week, whether it's because of news of bank collapses or whatever else is going on in the world that's upsetting us, trouble in our homes, sickness, death, we pray that you would remind us of your sovereign control, that nothing has happened or is happening or will happen that falls outside the purview of your reign, and that in the end you will win, and that we who belong to you will be on the right side of history, so to speak. Comfort us with that knowledge in Jesus' name. Amen.